Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Jennifer Hambrick. A multi-pushcart prize nominee, Jennifer Hambrick took first place in the 2018 Haiku Society of American Haibun Award competition, won the 2020 Sheila Nagig Press Poetry Prize, won the 2020 Stevens Poetry Manuscript Competition of the National Federation of State Poetry Societies for her free verse poetry collection in the high weeds. And second place in the 2021 Blackberry Peach Spoken Word Poetry Competition of the National Federation of State Poetry Societies. She is featured in the former US Poet Laureate Ted Kuzer's newspaper and online column, American Life in Poetry, was appointed the inaugural artist in residence at historic Bryn Du Mansion in Granville, Ohio, and authored the poetry collections Joyride and Unscathed. Hundreds of Hambrick's free verse and Japanese short form, poem, short form poems appear in literary journals and anthologies around the world. She is a frequent recipient of poetry commissions and has received numerous awards for her poetry, including from Tokyo's NHK World TV, Haiku Poets of Northern California, the Ohio Poetry, poetry Association, and others. In Ohio Arts Council teaching artist and creative writing, Jennifer is also a public radio host and producer in Columbus, Ohio. Learn more at jenniferhambrick.com. Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. So you have published two books in, in a short amount of time. Congratulations, by the way. Thank That's you. Quite a feat. Um, I wanted to ask to start by having you read a sample from In the High Weeds, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I will actually read um, the first poem in the collection. This is a poem called Innocent. He licks blood off his lips, the kid with the limp out on the playground does. The hoots of sixth graders growing louder as the boys slink farther away. That's one thing I remember. I wonder if the boy with the limp ever got even. And here's another thing I remember. The drop of nectar on my tongue that summer, landing from the stamen, that speck so sweet I killed every flower on the bush along the stone wall to get it again and again. Leaving the supermarket in a weird October heat wave, I smiled as I walked past a disabled man from the group home on a break from bagging groceries, and he pulls his hand out of the pocket of his hoodie. Here, he says, this is for you, and stretches his arm toward me. I put my hand under his fist and a caramel cream lands in my palm. It's just for you. At evening now, the room is getting cold. The sun is hiding on purpose, sinking in its seat like the shy child who sees out the sides of his glasses, the gang buzzing a short distance away from him in the cafeteria who licks a dab of jelly from the corner of his mouth, trying to feel okay, alone, and quiet, like maybe all things who sense that someone might just kill them for their sweetness. Thank you. You know, it's, it's clear, like, I, I loved reading this collection, and it's, you know, I, I can tell you're a veteran poet that's been around, you know, plugging away for quite some time. Um, let's start generally. What were your goals for In the High Weeds? You know, I wish I could say, oh, my goal was to explore this issue or that concept. 
um, in this collection. And voila, here is this collection that exhaustively makes that exploration. But I, I honestly, I can't say that about this collection. I had um, written lots of poems over the course of several years and got to a point uh, where many of the, the poems are published in journals, of course. And I got to a point where I put some of the poems together in this collection. Um, and I think they, they hold together thematically um, in, in various ways. But beyond that, I would say that my hope at least for this collection uh, is for it to be really just a handshake or, or maybe, maybe better put a warm hug <laughs> uh, to readers who, um, who might see something of themselves and also who might see a friend or a kindred spirit in the poems. Sure. So like if you're, if, when you were going through, I imagine it sounds like you started with a whole bunch of poetry and kind of whittled it down and said, these are the things that are like, um, what were some of the criteria you had for disqualifying poems that didn't fit in this collection? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, you know, I guess maybe in some cases uh, there were poems that didn't make it into this collection because they didn't have really any relevance thematically, you know, to 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 the other, or, or didn't bear any relation, I should say, maybe uh, thematically to 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 any of the other poems in the collection. There were some poems that didn't make it into the collection because, you know, they were what I would consider to be sort of beginner-ish, <laughs> um, and, and frankly, just not not that good, you know. Um, and uh, you know, there 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 were other poems in the collection that I just thought, well, you know, it's a good poem, maybe, but maybe the next collection, you know, maybe not this collection, maybe the next collection, um, and. I, I can't. I can't be more specific about what criteria kind of entered, you know, factored in, factored into to, to my making selections about the poems in, in, in that particular group, in that third group of um, poems that didn't quite make it into this manuscript. Yeah. Now that you have this collection done, what would you say this collection is about? Like, what are the themes? Like, what what did this project become when you were finished with it? Um. You know, I. I, when I, when I, you know, I, I put, I put a, a um, an epigraph, I guess, uh, at, at the beginning of, at the beginning of the manuscript. Um, for, it's a, it's a, it's a well-known quote from, from Baudelaire that, that goes something like, genius is nothing more than childhood recaptured, you know, at will. And the quote goes on to say, you know, and, and sort of, childhood captured at will and kind of dealt with, with this sort of mechanism, this kind of toolbox, if you will, um, that we as adults have for kind of processing what childhood, you know, was about, or maybe was supposed to be about. So I, I definitely would not say that this book is about my childhood. I, I, that, that, that's, too, that's too straightforward and too simplistic. But there's an awful, there was an awful lot of sort of looking in the rearview mirror, I guess I will say that I did when I was writing the poems in this collection. And a lot of them, you know, I guess if there's one overarching thing about these poems that binds so many of them together in this collection, it is that 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 sort of factor of the rearview mirror factor, <laughs> you know, that I did look in the rearview mirror as I was sort of writing um, writing those poems. Um, and I guess uh, in the process of doing that, I was just sort of trying to make sense of 
you know, I, I was making sense for myself of earlier stages in my life, be, be they stages from childhood or, or somewhat more recent stages. Sure. Okay. All right. And, and it's, it's obvious. I mean, your work is so disciplined. I mean, when you approach like your writing all fits, I mean, the, both of your collections, I, I really enjoyed reading them both because they felt like a complete jigsaw puzzle. You're looking at the whole thing and you're like, man, grandma, you did like 10,000 puzzle pieces. This is amazing. Um, and so, you know, you play with structure, um, you, you meld verse with prose, you combine different dynamic styles. Where do you get those ideas? What, did, what inspires those combinations? So some specific genres of poetry, you know, like sonnets or haiku or haibun, uh, for instance, you know, have have structures that 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 to a greater or lesser uh, to a greater or lesser extent are you know already fairly tightly defined or at least fairly clearly defined. But when it comes to structuring free verse poetry, uh, you know, into a sort of graphical form, and which I do a fair amount of, you know, in in the free verse poems in in the high weeds. Some of that really, actually a large part of that, a large bit of that I would say comes from frankly, just intuition, just, just having a hunch that a particular um, disposition on the page would somehow add or reinforce the, add to the meaning of the poem or reinforce the meaning of the poem. Um, and, and, then, and, then, and then there's also kind of a visual aspect of this too. You know, the, the first thing that you see when you lay your eyes on a poem is its shape, you know, is, is how it looks on the page. And so, you know, a poem I think needs to look the part, right? It needs to look like something. And, it, and if it looks immediately fresh to the eye, um, if it looks like it really is embodying itself and not just kind of a, an, un, an undisciplined, unstructured sort of mass of words, then then it's potentially off to a good start. It's potentially, you know, it catches the eye at least, you know, it looks, it's sort of like wearing a business suit to a job interview, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, dress for what you know, just dress yeah. for the job you want. You know? Exactly, dress for success, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. So. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I like that you brought up structure because In the High Weeds has, have, has a whole bunch of these excellent, um, they're, they're fully justified poems, they're, they're rectangular, um, and they're flat around the outsides. And within those poems, it seems like you spend more time, you know, playing with sound and repetition and word choice. And I found that interesting. You do that throughout. I mean, you play with sound all over the place. Like there's alliteration and internal and slant rhymes. And, and there's, there's a lot of real like fun crafting things throughout. But it's these rectangular poems that I noticed where you're really playing around more. And, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit discussing it some more sure that that's actually that's interesting i i th those would not have necessarily been some of the more sort of musical poems from my perspective you know in in the collection so that's it's interesting to hear you say that but musicality is actually really huge for me as a poet i i am a professional classical musician um, a professional music broadcaster and professional music writer uh, so everything I hear affects me. And I've always been fascinated by the sounds of words. You know, words have rhythm, uh, their vowel sounds, the sounds of their consonants. They have a very special kind of resonance. Uh, and I use that, that word very, very particularly because it's an acoustic term that musicians use all the time. 
And I very often will hear the rhythm of a line in a poem I'm writing before I actually fully know what specific words to put in that line, if that makes sense. And then I have to really live with the rhythm and honor the rhythm that my sort of inner ear tells me that line needs to have and find the words that, that, that kind of fill, fill that rhythm. And, and, and so, you know, just as a good piece of music will have a clear form and one that is in its own way, kind of logical to itself, a good poem will, I think, have a clearly understandable architecture, even if that architecture is unique to that particular poem. And when, when I write about classical music, I often refer to the architecture of a piece of music and maybe how a good performance of that piece articulates that architecture effectively. So in that sense, the formal structures of some of my poems, the, 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 the sort of rectangular ones that you referred to a moment ago, you know, with the, the tightly justified margins and just being sort of one example, uh, may express the importance of form and how I hear poems in the ear of my intuition as I'm creating the poems. And that, that is a very specifically musical thing for me, this concept of large scale form. Well, that's fascinating. Um, so it's almost like the, 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 you know, it's almost like you're composing the music before you make the lyrics for that song in a way. It, it's, you know, huh, that, that's, that's interesting. Like, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say before, like I don't, I don't, have, I don't have necessarily a poem mapped out in my head. E either in its individual words or in its kind of, um, you know, overall form, large scale form, I'll call it, almost ever before I sit down to write, you know, um, and, 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 and some, but, but sometimes, you know, I, I will just, I will just write because really it, you have to just write, you know what I mean? You have to just get it out on the page and then you can edit, you know, that's a beautiful, like editing is such a great gift, you know, um, uh, for for us writers, you know, but but you have to get it out on the page. So sometimes I'll just write, and then I'll think, you know, this doesn't look like anything, you know. Or what would happen if I brought margins in and made made this poem, you know, look like something on the page? Oh, well, that has the effect of sort of giving the the words a kind of constricted feel, and in relation to the subject matter of this poem, which is maybe about being in a not great marriage, you know, that constricted feel adds meaning to the poem. So, so sometimes I come up with the, the, the form as it were, you know, the, the sort of disposition of the words on the page in, in the editing process. It's not, all, it's not all fully formed in my head when I start writing. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's cool because I think there are a lot of poets who start by writing a poem from an emotional place, you know, that they, they feel something first and then they're like, yeah, I need to commit this to writing however I can and I'll worry about the editing later. And, and so I'm wondering, because your, your music background makes this so much more interesting. So I'm wondering like, do you feel that the, the, the uh, when you start writing, that the gut reaction to create something new, the, 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 the music and that raw emotional content, content is linked? Um, do they come from the same place? Are you, you know? So, so it's interesting. Like I, I, I am not a composer. 
you know, maybe maybe if I composed music, I I I would say, oh, definitely, or maybe or definitely not. You know, where where I compose music from is is totally not the same place um, from which I write poetry. So so I I don't know. Um, I for me, I'm, I'm sort of that, that I'm maybe comparing apples to oranges just a little bit. Um, I I do know that that the you know again the 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 musicality of the words, the rhythm, the sounds writ large, um, and this idea that the poem has to have a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, like a sonata has an, an exposition, a development and a recapitulation section, you know, um, for instance, those, those are sort of, I think maybe the, 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 the elements of a musical blueprint, if I can put it in those terms that, that I, I would suspect um, are kind of at play in terms of how I, how I write poetry. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, um, I, I think I will probably have to think about your question a little bit more. The other thing I can, the other thing I can say is that when I'm when I'm doing a lot of performing as a musician, which actually we're we're in, um, you know, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. I really haven't been doing a lot of performing yeah. um, over the last year or so. Um, but when I am doing a lot of performing or a lot of practicing or preparing for a performance, I tend not to write poetry. Um, on one level, it's it's maybe a question of just having only so many hours in a day and having only so much energy because I do find that that performing is very, the whole process of performing is very, it, it takes a lot of energy um, um, for me to do that. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like on that level, the the, the poetry muse, if you will, and the kind of uh, musician muse for me just don't really talk to each other all that well they don't necessarily play nicely when it comes to sort of like the reality of sort of me going out and doing musical stuff and me going out and doing poetry stuff so but but from from the standpoint of actually creating poetry I would say the music everything I know about music everything I feel and intuit about music everything I hear I feel that coming through the words um, and I that so that there is a sort of musical blueprint in that sense, um, uh, I guess, as a as a sort of background to to my to my work writing poetry, and and you can feel that right. Like I, I when reading it and and now hearing you talk about it, I can feel where that stuff is coming from. You had this poem, one of the poems in In the High Weeds, where you're talking about it's just like peppers on a plate. You said like red green red green on a chip china plate, and and that is stuck in my head for days because. Huh. I'm, I'm seeing this image and the chip China is like a nice little, like, you know, I was, I was mumbling that phrase to myself as I was doing dishes one night, you know, just, <laughs> you know, just I'm cleaning off peppers off my kid's plate and I'm thinking red, green, red, green on a chip China plate. So I, I can feel, I think, I, you know, now that you're, you know, that musicality and that Perhaps they're at war, but I, th I think that they're they're combined. Also, I think that they're connected, and I, and you probably can't separate those two. I imagine if you know, you probably have more to say about that. You know. Yeah, I, I I think I think I think a lot. You know, I think a lot of of good poets' work is very very musical, and and I mean, you know, it might be relevant to mention here that you know the in in Greek antiquity, poetry and music were, you know, almost always linked. I mean, there just was very you know, um, little, you know, one was almost expected to go with the other. Um, so, um, 
yeah. So, so they're definitely, but there definitely is a musicality to words. And that's one of the things that I've always loved about words. Awesome. Now this is probably a loaded question, but what's your favorite creative tool? <laughs> my intuition. Intuition. It, it's, it's my most important creative tool, no, no doubt. But you know, for a long time, I didn't know what it was or how to access it or that I even could access my intuition on demand, you know? Uh, but, but now like I, I, have I, I have conversations with my intuition actually all the time when I'm writing poetry and, and I, I'm, I'm always asking favors of it. So <laughs> kind of like an annoying neighbor. You know? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Well, I'm sorry, what do I? So uh, that, that's, that's really interesting. What, what do you mean when you say like, what, what, is, what does a conversation with your intuition sound like? Oh. Well, you know, so you're working on a poem or, you know, I'm, I'm working on a poem and I get to a point where maybe, maybe I can see in my mind's eye, okay, here's the image I kind of want to work with, but I can't find quite the right words or, uh, you know, yet, or, okay, I'm at, at a, I'm at a point in the poem where something needs to happen. Maybe the poem needs to turn. What direction should I turn in? And I will actually sit quietly and say, what direction do I need to turn it, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, what, okay, you know, is this the point where I need to turn the pot, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I really, I really do. I, I discovered this actually um, not that many years ago, really. I mean, maybe three or four years ago when I was working on a high bun actually. And I thought, okay, well now how, how, how should I really structure this high bun? How should I really, I had a kind of an idea for the poem, but, but, and I actually sat very quietly with the computer on. I sat right in front of the computer. It was all ready to type. And I just sat very quietly and kind of listened. And then, and then I, you know, all these words started to come. I felt almost like I was taking dictation in a way, you know? Um, so, so that's sort of a conversation with my intuition. I ask, I ask favors of it, but that it ultimately it has to, it, I have to let it talk, you know? Um, Sure. Sure. I, I, I had a, I had a professor who once described it as a bag of tricks. You reach in, you have no idea what you're going to pull out because you don't even know what's in the bag and you just hope it's something useful that day, you know? <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. That, that was his description of intuition. Yeah. 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 Like it, it, it was, it was a mix between intuition and being in the zone where you're like that courtroom stenographer and you're just kind of like, you know, taking notes you know, and you're hoping that when you get to the other side, you have a bunch of raw poetic material that you can use. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, I, I like the in the zone idea. I don't, you know, it's funny, like, you know, when, when, when we think of athletes being in the zone, we know that, that, you know, those athletes, they are, they are performing at peak performance. They are, they are making baskets. They are, you know, catching footballs and running and, you know, when, when I feel like I'm kind of in the zone as a writer, I know that what I'm coming up with is, and you said the phrase just a moment ago, it, it's raw materials. It's not peak performance. You know what I mean? It's, it's sort of like, I, I know when I'm writing a poem, okay, great, I've got stuff out on the page, great. Because there's nothing worse for a writer than a blank page, right? You've got words on a page, 
you know, you've got to start. <laughs> but that's so, so that's like being in the zone for a writer, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, but, but it does feel good. I mean, even, even when you come up with stuff that you know you're going to have to edit, that's all right. There's no shame in that. But, but, but it's just really about letting the words flow and kind of getting them out on page. And so, so, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, I've learned to lower my own expectations for what sort of being in the zone for me at least as a writer, <laughs> um, really is all about. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. So I, you know, I, I've been running this poetry workshop for a while and now that I have you here, because I, I love how, I, I've said it once already, I'll say it again. I love how disciplined your technique is. So I wanna take advantage of your brain while you're here. And, and I noticed uh, among writers who are a little insecure, you know, there's some confusion or hesitation about when craft what crafting techniques should be employed and when they're appropriate and i think this makes people afraid to experiment like try things out and just let themselves let go you know because you're saying your, your intuition is the most important part it's mo your biggest asset and that's the thing that people shell up from they're they're afraid to just like let that intuition out so if we liken poetic craft techniques to a, a toolbox and as a veteran poet with a keen eye for structure and control over the techniques you use, what advice do you have in terms of tool selection? So, okay, so first of all, I, am I a veteran poet? I think that's really interesting. You said that earlier. <laughs> I think you are. Um, I, I, um, you are, I, you're here and the, the stuff, that intro was amazing. Like you're, you're doing it, man. Like this is great. Thank you. No, I, I did know that. I, I, feel, I feel too young uh, and, and green, frankly, um, to be a veteran poet, but thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I, 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 hate to, I really hate to lay this on my intuition again, but uh, there, there really is something, I think, to be said for the gut check. Um, you know, does this poem feel right this way? If not, you know, to even if just say maybe not, then why not try writing it in a different way? You know, um, there's no shame in that. And you can learn an awful lot. J just over the weekend, I, I wrote um, what I had conceived as a single poem in two vastly different ways. <laughs> Mainly because when I, when I first started writing, I, you know, I had, okay, I'm gonna write this poem. And then I actually ended up writing a very different poem. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me try to write the poem that I kind of sat down to write you know um and it, it was you know it, it was a really good exercise it was very instructive and i i will also add this because i think it's very important and it might get closer to to your question i'm one of these people who likes to plan i like to know where i'm going um and and i don't get writer's block or haven't but very often i've had the experience of getting what i know is a good idea for a poem and then spending a few days saying okay, so hmm, it's a great idea for a poem. How should I start the poem? How should this poem start? And uh, what is the message that the poem is you know, really gonna convey? And how will the ending go? And I have to remind myself that for me at least, the process of sitting down and starting to write the poem will always reveal the answers to those questions. Um, and I don't think I'm, I'm alone in that experience. So. I've learned um, in my own work just to, to start writing and to trust the process. I think that's what they mean when they say, trust the process, at least that's what that means to me. Mm -hmm. And this is what I tell people 
you know, to do when they ask me, how do I get over writer's block? I have writer's block, I can't write. I tell them, you know, to kind of rub the scarlet W off their foreheads, right? For writer's block. Uh, Hawthorne would be proud. (laughs) (laughs) And to to totally reject that Mm -hmm. self-diagnosis and to sit down and write and just, you know, have fun with it. I, I mean, in this sense, a poem is like life. It begins or it can begin before you know the middle or the ending. And over the process of a lifetime, the middle and the ending take care of themselves. And I mean, just to use one, one, other, one other example, sort of, and this is a sort of a visual one. Uh, I think this is in the third Indiana Jones film. Um, there's a scene where Indiana Jones has to step off a cliff, step off a cliff um, yeah. <laughs> because he, he's trying to get from this cliff across this whole huge chasm, this deep chasm to the other cliff. And he can't just step across the chasm. He has to, and it's too big to jump. And I, I, maybe, he, has he even lost his rope? I don't, I don't remember, but the only way he can get from that cliff to the other cliff across the chasm is to, he's told sort of take a step on, you know, out and out into over the, over the chasm yeah, as if he were to fall. It's be okay. Exactly. And then he takes, so he takes the step and you know the music wells up, <laughs> yeah. and just as his foot, you know, kind of hits level, you know, a stone appears under it to support him, and then he takes another step, and another stone appears, and so on and so forth, and he ends up making it across the chasm, mm-hmm. and that's how I think, um, you know, how how in any writer who feels either because you know writer's block or because well gee, do I have enough tools? Do I have enough technique? What tools should I use? All of these are sort of forms of, of, of um, self-paralysis. And I think the only way out of that is to move, right? You've got to take a step. You've got to sit down and just write um, and, and not think about it. But it's very easy. It's very, very easy to get into this whole sort of, well, I don't know how the poem goes, net, it goes yet. So, so how should I write the poem? Well, you write the poem in order to know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's that's one of the things I talk about with my workshop sometimes. It's like, maybe you set out to do thing A, but B happened. And now B is a bigger thing. And this, the poem wants to be B. And, and you, if you want A, you have to bring that out. You have to go back and invest. So that way you can, because something else happened. You create, You gave it new life. And now you have to deal with those consequences. Yeah, and maybe poem B is is poem B is fine. Maybe maybe at the end of the day you'll have both poem A and poem B, which is even better. <laughs> which is even better, you know. So, yeah, yeah, just right, right. I mean, I I have to say, you know, and I think I think this may play into to to some people's questions about like how to get poems published and that sort of thing. I don't know, but I every word I've written as a poet has been. Has has worked, you know what I mean? Has done has done work for me. Mm-hmm. I've either gotten the words published as a poem, or they've I haven't gotten them published as this poem. But then I was able to rework them over here as this poem, and that has been published and has won an award or something. I mean, it's not all about publication. It's not all about awards. I you know I I understand that, but um, but nothing is a waste. I guess is what I'm trying to say. No writing is ever a waste. Do you think it's easy to sense the divide between? intuition and experimentation and do you think that it's easy to confuse the two and that those two things can cause conflict for a writer 
that's interesting. I, I don't really think, I mean, the divide between intuition and experimentation, I, I don't think there's a divide, for me, there's no divide between intuition and anything, to be honest. Um, I think that maybe some, some experiments can be very well guided by intuition. I mean, that's when you would reach out for, you know, the inspiration. That's when you would reach out for the, the sort of spirit guide, if you want to call it that, of inspiration or of, of intuition, right? When you don't quite know what you're doing, you know? Um, because sometimes that intuition might not kick in until you're editing, right? Like you're, you say, you know, I set out to write poem A, I now have awareness that I have poem B. And so by the time you hit poem B, you're like, okay, this is what it needs now. And so that intuition might not even be present at the beginning. You might just be messing around and hmm. then turn around and find something new. See, yeah, I, that's interesting. That's interesting. I think for, I, I don't know, I would tend to think that, and maybe again, this is just unique to my own process. I don't know, but I would tend to think that I am, I am relying far more on intuition during the initial writing stage. And then when it, when I get everything out on the paper and I'm sort of polishing it up, that's when I turn my left brain on and my, you know, um, you know, does, does this, does this poem is, is, you know, does this poem have an actual logic of its own? Mm -hmm. um, does it speak a language of its own, you know, fluently, or is it not quite, you know, not quite set? Um, so I, I, but, but yeah, so I, I would, I would, I would, I would guess that, you know, for me, the intuition piece is, is far earlier in the process and the, the, uh, the editing piece is more analytical. Okay. That's cool. All right. Um, so I want to turn our, our attention to your other collection, Joyride. Um, that is a collection of haibun, which are poems that combine, you know, eloquent prose with, with haiku. And I just want to ask what, what drew your attention to this art form? It's fascinating. Like, I, I, I was reading through this thing and I was like, holy cow, this is such a neat idea. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really fun genre. Um, uh, and, and just, just, just a brief historical note about the genre. It, 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 it's, it's, an, it's an ancient, at this point, Japanese genre. Um, and it, it kind of emerged as its own sort of independent genre out of um, Basho's The Narrow Road to the Deep North, which is this classic sort of travel journal. Uh, and in this journal, uh, he, you know, he writes about making the trip all the way up to the, to the northernmost part of the uh, Japanese archipelago. And, you know, he writes in these prose episodes that he then will um, punctuate with haiku. And so a, a sort of vignette, if you will, of prose punctuated with haiku ended up sort of spinning off in its own, as its own kind of genre outside of Basho's travel journal, uh, in essence, which is what this, uh, the narrow road to the deep north is in part. Um, so, so that's the sort of background, the origin of the genre. And I got into haibun uh, a few years ago when I started writing haiku um, seriously and learning about haiku, including learning how to write haiku in English properly, which is uh, actually a whole other conversation. <laughs> for, for, for the last 14 years or so, I've been writing professionally for media. So writing in a genre that combines prose and poetry um, is really a, a great fit for me. Uh, writing writing haibun really feels like, you know, a full body workout <laughs> as a writer. Um, 
I, I will add though, that I bring a lot of techniques of, you know, from the world of free verse poetry into my work with Highbone. So for me, it's not, it's not really completely correct. It's not totally correct, I, I'll say, uh, you know, to, to say that Highbone is a genre that combines eloquent prose with, with haiku, because a lot of times my, my Highbone really expand what would normally be the prose sections into free verse poems into formal poems, like I, you know, like guzzles <laughs> uh, and, and join them with haiku. So this is sort of an expansive approach to the uh, approach to the genre that, that, um, that, that for me at least makes writing Haiman really feel like a workout as a writer. It's great. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. You had the one, the one poem Carzilla and you ended it with this um, haiku. It, it was, it, I, I hope I get, get this right. So I apologize if I don't, it's an open field a harvester at the fork in the road. And it was that fork in the road part because I thought that the harvester would be the most interesting part, but it, it, it was such a nice bun to the rest of this poem. Hmm. And I, I really wanted to know, like, um, you know, how did you decide? Because it was such, a lot of these haiku serve as great ribbons, you know, to tie onto the package, I think. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, when did you decide that you wanted to experiment with these techniques, that these techniques were the proper fit? Was it a little bit like, you know, following that intuition and the editing is the technical side where you're like, okay, I'm going to edit now. You know what's missing? Some haiku, you know, like, and you come in and, or is it like, do you see it somewhere else and you think I should adopt that? I'm just curious. Uh, so, so um, maybe I'll answer, um, I'll answer that question. Um, that question specifically, uh, I guess, in reference to the Haibun and Joyride. Um, the the, um, the 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 that that particular collection of Haibun is in three sections, uh, and the middle section is actually a narrative sequence of Haibun. So over the course of I don't know ten or twelve Haibun, I tell this whole story about this crazy beach trip that my husband and I took before we were married, uh, and I don't want to give away the ending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and Carzilla, which is the high bun that you referenced, is actually part of that narrative sequence. Um, and so, so I knew I wanted to tell that story, uh, which is sort of a travel story. So I went back to high bun's roots and sort of travel writing, which is actually still very commonly done, at least among English language high bun writers. Uh, and, and so I, I, you know, and I told that story of the course of high bun, you know, or, or, excuse me, I told that story, you know, kind of through high bun, um, you know, again, because it was made, it was a, it was a, it was a travel related story. It was a nice narrative that I could tell in these sort of vignettes, um, that then would, would sort of be punctuated by haiku. But I will also say that a lot of the poems, uh, you know, in, in Joyride, a lot of the high bun in Joyride have a very different kind of flavor and a very different feel from what I kind of tend to see in English language high bun. Um, high, high bun in English tend to, to occupy sort of the, the more morose, uh, you know, end of the emotional spectrum. They don't, you know, not, not exclusively, of course, but, uh, and, and I, I, I kind of wanted to not do that, you know, I kind of wanted to, to offer another sort of uh, set of possibilities there. Um, why, why not write something that's a little offbeat and a little quirky and maybe a little bit funny in a genre that isn't normally treated that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so, 
Um, so, so, so getting maybe closer to your question, um, many of the high bun in, in, in Joyride, I write in this sort of manic, I write the prose in the sort of manic run-on style. There, there, there are reasons for that internally in terms of like the narrative, uh, you know, the, the, the narrative arc, the plot arc <laughs> uh, in that middle section in particular that I'm trying to sort of uh, um, articulate. And then the haiku um, are, are to sort of resonate with the prose sections and also resonate with the titles of the haibun as well. So the haiku kind of reflects something of the imagery maybe or some, some aspect of the, the sort of storyline or what have you, or the emotional, um, you know, uh, amplify if you will, the emotional resonance that, that comes out in other, in other aspects of the, of the high bun. So, um, so I, I, did that answer your question? Kind of. <laughs> yeah, totally. and you know what you said, like you had talked about the titles merging with the haiku and I, I immediately thought of the poem climbing because you have the haiku is about like climbing the stairs and there's the morning, morning light at the top and you're, you're climbing up to that since, you know, the title. And so I, it, to me, it makes perfect sense. And to everyone else, get the book and you'll find out because <laughs> <Right, yeah. laughs> that's how you'll learn. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So let me ask, what aspect of your writing are you trying to improve right now? All of them. All of them. <laughs> no, really, yeah, yeah, and, and and I mean, not just not just right now, but all the time. I am always, uh, you know, trying to make my prose zippier and more elegant and clearer and more fluid. I'm always trying to invent fresh images in my poetry and in my prose. But I'm one of those writers who loves to write. I, you know, I, I once heard an interview on the radio. This was many years ago. Uh, it was an interview with a well-known novelist, and the interviewer asked him do you like to write? And his response was, he paused and he said, I like to have written. <laughs> um, and, and, and I like to have written too, but I really, really like the process of writing, you know, of immersing myself in words. Time, time really does stand still for me when I'm writing. And that's, that's really the blessing of writing. And it's also, I think, really the gift. Awesome. All right, well, we're about to wrap up. So I'd like to ask you, do you have a second poem you'd like to read? Sure, sure. Um, I had this extraordinary experience one time when I, uh, I made a trip to Philadelphia. Uh, and this poem um, basically tells of that experience. This is called Shadowing Sisters in the City of Brotherly Love. Larks travel in exaltations, cats in clouders, and the ten religious sisters walking around Old Town Philly, luminous in their long white habit flashing up ahead in the late June sun, maybe a radiance of nuns, an attraction of nuns, drawing me toward them curious in quickened steps. Their chatter bubbles up, floats over their heads and back to me, now at their heels, a babble of nuns. Long black bead rosaries swing from their waists in graceful arcs. I place my feet where their assured steps had been before on the rough sea of crooked red brick. In the steam and grit of city traffic, the sweaty exhaustion of tourists already bored from the anticlimax of the Liberty Bell, 
I imagine giving up my clothes, proud clearance rack bargains, abandoning office casual for the simplicity of robe and veil. I imagine not having any money to worry about losing, not bothering with homeowner's insurance, not having to order another box of checks, a freedom of nuns. I wonder if giving up every worldly thing is how they get God to talk to them. I'm dying of thirst, one of the sisters announces. At a pita stand up ahead, they order Cokes and root beers, discuss chicken fingers, pull out wallets, pay with wads of cash. The man behind the counter hands out a paper cup and a sister takes a long draft through the straw. I cannot believe, she says, eyes lifted, how good this tastes right now. Awesome, thank you. That's thank wonderful. you. All right, well, this, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA's blog. Visit the OhioPoetryAssociation.org for more information. And Jennifer, thank you so very much for coming in. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. It's a total honor.